Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Another weekend. The week goes by. And I would prefer not to have to start the uh, show out by uh, discussing what went wrong in the last election. <laughs> Rick Wagner here. Getting it right. KNZZ 1100 and KGLN 980. That'd be on your AM. On the FM, it'd be 92.7 and 101.3. We're on the Internet, and podcast that you can get just by looking up the Rick Wagner show on Spotify or your Alexa, assuming you're letting that listen into you, anything like that. So jump in and join us. Oh, and we have a pretty good website uh, at the Rick Wagner show.com. I'm not even selling anything. I'm just the, the capitalism is starting to fail in me, I guess. So we had an election on Tuesday in several states and of course, the big story out of it is that the Republicans didn't do particularly well. I'm not even sure that's a big story anymore, is it? Isn't that just kind of what we expect? Especially when everything looks like it ought to be going in our direction. People think the country is going in a bad direction. Most of the people, including most Democrats, don't think Joe is capable of running the country. We have inflation still high, despite what they keep trying to say. Unemployment is going up at the same time labor participation stays pretty low. It looks like we're going to fall off the cliff in commercial real estate. And certainly residential is already uh, tumbling down and hanging by one of those roots that uh, Wiley E. Coyote hangs onto in the cartoons. Yeah, that's kind of where that's at. Uh, and commercial is going to hit the bottom here pretty soon because so much has happened with commercial real estate where a lot of the occupancy has gone way down. And for a variety of reasons. In some of the cities, it's gone down because people don't want to be attacked by uh, homeless and drugged-up lunatics whenever they go outside. So they'd like to move away. Others is that they just they overbuilt office space and retail space. People aren't going as many places. Sometimes these retail places in these cities, for the same reason we just discussed. Others, that there are just not as many people returning to the office and they just have overbuilt a little bit. Well, there's a lot of these newer buildings, some of them maybe near you, that will come up for renewal on their loans. And they probably got their loans when it was really low, maybe 3.5%, 4.2%, something like that. They may be renewing them at 8 That's a huge difference, especially when you're already underwater, like a lot of these properties are, in terms of occupancy. So commercial real estate nationally, and in most instances locally for folks too, uh, is just going to be a mess pretty soon. So all those things, and of course, we have a little trouble finding peace in the world, uh, where it seems like that wherever Joe uh, has been looking, uh, a war breaks out, or not looking, I guess, might be a better way to put it. They don't slide him out of that test tube up in Delaware often enough, maybe. So there's that going on. Our national debt is such that it seems almost impossible, if perhaps just improbable, 
that we'll be able to pay it off in the foreseeable future or even get it knocked down. It's an, it's an enormous amount of money, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and it's going up at an alarming rate. And what I worry about is next year that we see more vote buying goes on. I mean, this is the way that uh, the Democrat Party tries to stay in power is by throwing money out. First they print it, then they borrow it from people who hate us, and then they try and distribute it to buy votes. And since it's going to be a tough year for them next year, I wonder what things they're going to try. How many more inflation reduction packages are we going to see out there uh, that will uh, be essentially targeted to places that uh, will make people be holding to the Democrat Party structure, particularly the far left? Again, there's some problems with, oh, I don't know, uh, idiotic rioters at uh, major colleges across the United States that have moronic views of world affairs. And I mean that they're founded on absolutely uninformed ideas and thoughts. We see that whenever they're interviewed. I almost was going to play, but it's not that long anyway. But it's out of Britain. They had some pro-Palestinian protesters, of course. And they ask a couple of the ones in front that I I guess were a little more friendly uh, what they thought about what happened on October 7th in Israel. Now, these people are carrying Palestinian flags and a, a homemade sign that talked about genocide and all kinds of things, and they didn't know. When they ask about some of the specifics, they weren't very clear on them. This is, I'm not sure that happened. I, I haven't heard anything about it, essentially. So that gives you some idea of the level of inquiry that we're getting from people who are really, in some instances, pretty violently protesting, actually very violently protesting. Uh, We saw that poor individual, individual, rather, killed uh, a 69-year-old man, hit in the face with a megaphone, uh, went down on the sidewalk, subsequently died. That kind of stuff is happening much more often than it should, and it seems to be sort of just uh, becoming part of the landscape. That's not a good thing. Protesting is one thing. See, we, we've allowed this whole idea of protest to devolve. We're welcome to protest, but where is the line, right? I mean, it's it's like trying to find the line between free speech and speech that has to be curtailed in some way. With that particular example, we take it pretty far because it's still speech. When you get into behavior that we classify as speech. Remember, there are several types of behavior that we've decided are speech. And, for instance, in movies, the depiction of certain things is representative speech, things like that, even though it may not, in fact, be verbal per se. But it has some of the same protections that speech does. Our courts have kind of molded that, if you want to call it that. So what about protest? I don't believe we really have anymore the idea what are the sort of limits on protest to where it becomes outside of the constitutional protection i hate that because i don't like getting too firm on boundaries when it comes to what the constitution is trying to lay out about the powers of the state to curtail your natural rights but i think we can all agree that it used to be that your ability to protest, 
that was protected speech ends when you're harming someone or it ends when you're destroying property. And the left likes to say, well, no, no uh, right is absolute. Well, that's true in most sense of the word or in the sense of the word that they're using. However, they're usually common sense things. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a famous jurist, had this great line that I always like to say when they talked about your rights, how do you define rights? And he said, well, you know, my right to swing my arm ends where your nose begins. That's a pretty easy one. But that's sort of what society is going through. The right to protest ends where other people's safety begins, where property begins in terms of putting it in the hazard, making it so it can be damaged or burned down or whatever the case may be. And it seems like we've we've been defining that down, sort of uh, the great line that da- Daniel Patrick Moynihan had about defining deviancy down. We're doing that all the time. We're taking what is, in fact, deviant behavior. In other words, behavior that deviates from what, either the norm or what should be the norm. Because, you know, normative behavior isn't a mystery, certainly in the main. Normative behavior is the kind of behavior that advances something good about civilization and advances the human condition. That's pretty much what normative behavior is going to be. Behavior that is counter to that, even if it's in the short term, if it's bad enough, that's deviant behavior. Welcome back, everybody. I suppose since I ended the last uh, segment discussing deviant behavior that you thought I might give some examples. But I don't think I need to. I mean, you see it all the time. Just go to a website and look at any of the newspapers from large cities. I mean, you don't even have to do that, but it's easiest that way. Oh, go to the New York Post or the San Francisco Chronicle or, you know, one of those. Now, the Post is better because they're sort of a more conservative viewpoint, so they don't hide stuff. If you look at the New York Times about New York, it's very hard to tell that the place has become a dump. They don't talk about it as much, but if you're standing out there, uh, there's a couple things you notice. First, that you shouldn't stand still for very long because someone might come along and rob you. Second thing is that uh, it looks pretty dirty. And the third thing would be is it smells, and not just of dirty people, but pot everywhere. This is what everyone tells me is that since they've been legalizing marijuana in New York, and then since they can't seem to control not just the amount of legal marijuana establishments, which is, I seem weird to say that, but they're overrun with these pop-up shops uh, that sell illegal marijuana. They don't seem to be able to control that either. And by the way, as we've discussed before, none of these states that have legalized recreational marijuana have been able to really make even a dent in the illegal portion of drug sales because every one of them taxes the marijuana to try and get it for their, who knows what they use it for. I'm in Colorado. We have it here. I still can't figure out what they're using it for. But they pack tax to the point where the price is so high 
that individuals who are seeking it out can get it so much cheaper in the so-called black market, and there's no real consequence because as soon as you buy it and walk away, no one can tell where you got it. Is that legal or illegal marijuana? I don't know. How can you tell the difference? Well, you know, is it green? And, you know, (laughs) I guess they could perhaps start putting like little electronic trackers in the marijuana sold in the legitimate stores. And then if you wanted to find out, you could just wave like a sensor over it, it would tell you. Yeah. Except for the fact that I think that probably they just take them out or, or someone would manufacture them and put them into the illegal marijuana or that smoking them with smoking the marijuana with them in it might be very deleterious to people. So there's a lot of downsides to that idea. So it's really hard to do. Some people suggested dyeing it. I remember I heard that. Well, they could just dye the marijuana that is from the stores. You, you don't you don't think maybe the illegal people would like just start doing that? <laughs> it's it's interesting to listen to the ideas that come out of uh, the legislature around the edges around there when you talk to people about problems. At any rate, op- open those newspapers up figuratively on your computer or pad or phone or whatever, and take a look at some of the stories about what's going on in the street there. If that doesn't feel like deviant behavior to you, in other words, behavior that is counter to the advancement of civilization, then you're just reading the wrong papers. Because it's crazy. I was watching a video, oh, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, that someone had taken in San Francisco... And there was another one in New York and uh, another one perhaps out of Chicago or several of them of where people just driving down a couple of these streets. I, I know the, the one that really caught my eye was San Francisco because uh, this guy was going down what's the Tenderloin District. And those of you that have been there know that it used to be kind of a cool place. Uh, it, now it is, I mean, it looks like a refugee camp for people who have been shot with uh, tranquilizer darts. People are just laying all over the place. And the ones that aren't laying are staggering. Some of them like to shout. I mean, that makes them feel, you know, like they're doing something. And this trank, which is uh, a drug that is essentially pretty much something you would use as a gorilla tranquilizer, uh, is uh, fascinating in the way it, it hits these people, is that they just become motionless. And they just either slump into whatever they're standing next to or they just completely bend over and just stand there like a uh, statue that's been broken in half. It's it's really heartbreaking to some extent. And I'm not exactly sure what you do about it. I don't think giving them uh, cards so that they can have more money is going to help these things. I don't think... Providing cell phones to them is going to straighten that out. Telling them to just say no apparently doesn't work. Uh, Some other ideas have to come to the fore. So none of these things advance civilization. Things that make people's lives better, more free, provide more liberty, provide more choices in life. Because remember, if you're not given choices then you don't have liberty. If the choices become constrained 
the more they become constrained, the more liberty that you lose. So you want to do things that enlarge that as much as possible without infringing on other people's liberty and their rights or their persons. We don't seem to have any idea about that anymore. doesn't seem to be on people's minds at all. So when you look at that kind of behavior, it's it's no wonder we're in the situation we're at. And I wonder at what point you get to the uh, no-way-back zone. You know, it's sort of like if you uh, are flying something, say a helicopter, there is a point of what? No return, where you've exceeded the amount of fuel you have to get back. So you either keep going, and that's a really bad idea if it's in the wrong direction, or you just try and stop where you're at. I don't think we want to stop where we're at, and I don't think we can get back to where we came from, but I do think we should at least try and go in a different direction. And hopefully that will happen at some point. But it doesn't appear to be happening very soon with the Republican Party because they can't seem to win much of anything. We saw the selections on this last Tuesday. Now, where I'm at in Mesa County, we had a couple of good things. Um, you know, I had a couple of these school district candidates on, really good people. Uh, Barbara Evanson, one of them, looks like she won. Uh, the other one, Cindy Scala, she's really a good gal, but uh, it looks like she looks like she lost that, going to lose that tight race. But we still had some good results. One of them was in the, our state here. Uh, you know, we have taxpayers' bill of rights, which has been steadily eroded since they pushed it in. But one of the things they had was Proposition HH. I guess that's ho ho, and the idea of it was essentially to backdoor dismember the taxpayers bill of rights in terms of uh, retention of funds by the by the government and people were smart enough to see through that and it got rejected where i where i'm at about 68% of the people voting rejected it but here's the problem we still had a couple of fairly progressive things get pushed through. One of them was, of course, that school board race. And what I wonder about is, I looked at the voter participation in my area. Only 45% of the registered voters decided to participate. And they don't even have to really leave their house. Well, they do. They have to go to the post office. I mean, we don't even think anybody should be voting in person anymore. It's too much trouble didn't mail a ballot in or drop it off at a drop box. 45%. Now, the way things are going nationally and in many cases locally, you would think people would show up, but it doesn't appear to be the case. I got a lot of emails from our local Republican Party because they were able to track how many Republicans had returned ballots and stuff like that, and a lot of Republicans just didn't. And I know a lot of the Republicans are actually conservatives. They just didn't get around to it. And that kind of laissez-faire attitude about your own government will lead to a government that does not have a laissez-faire attitude about you. Right? Just because you don't care about the government doesn't mean that the government isn't going to start caring about you. And I don't mean caring for you, but I mean 
caring about what you're doing. <laughs> so it's an important thing to participate in. I guess I, I beat that drum all the time. And most people listening know that. we got to get our neighbors and people like that out. we got to make sure people vote, especially right-thinking folks. All right, 45%. I recognize there was no, in where I'm at, there was no statewide offices on the agenda or anything like that. Now, where some of these places there were, or at least uh, important races in terms of the state legislatures. And, of course, let's look at what happened in Virginia. They actually lost seats. In the, they had a small majority of Republicans in the House of Delegates, which is like the House of Representatives on, on a state's level, and they lost that. Whereas Yunkin, the governor out there, thought there was a chance they could actually keep that and flip the, the Senate, which was Democrat. They didn't happen either. As a matter of fact, the woman out there that was making porn, uh, that was running barely lost. Uh, hi, everybody. I did not forget that it is Veterans Day, and I want to take this segment to talk a little about it. A uh, little boogie 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 boy <laughs> from World War II. But uh, and I, I was originally going to try and find something uh, from World War One where we Veterans Day sort of orig- did originate. But uh, I found like that's a long way to Tipperary, which is a great song, and a couple things like that. Most of them are a little more uh, Europe-oriented because we were – really only in the war right around a year. But I thought we'd touch a little bit on this Veterans Day. And for those of you listening on the next uh, on Sunday, uh, you know, that's still just as good. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of Veterans Day because I, I didn't know some of this stuff and I thought it'd be interesting to share. And it's observed, of course, on November 11th. It's a federal holiday. And it's, of course, dedicated to military veterans who served in the U.S. Armed Forces. The history of it dates back to the end of World War I, of course, known as the Great War, or the, the War to End War, if you remember that. The hostilities of World War I, I mean, they ended with the Armistice of Campaign, which took effect on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. Now, originally, uh, this day was commemorated as Armistice Day. And beginning in 1918, honor the veterans of World War One. In 1938, it became a national holiday. After, however, after World War Two and the Korean War, which brought about the greatest mobilization of soldiers, sailors, and Marines in our history, they decided to recognize all veterans and not just those that served in World War One, such getting Armistice Day that in that sense. So in 1954, uh, after several Years of the Veterans Organization's lobbying Congress, the 83rd Congress amended that 38 Act and made Armistice Day a holiday, replacing Armistice with Veterans. President Eisenhower signed legislation on June 1, 1954. And from then on, November 11th came the day to honor our veterans. Uh, there was a time, <laughs> there was a time, and you, you, I did not remember this, but there was a Uniform Monday Holiday Act of 1968 to move a lot of these things to Mondays. But people didn't like it, particularly uh, on Veterans Day. So they moved it back to November 11th, no matter what day it falls upon. I think it's around 1978. And, of course, it's a time for all us to remember and honor those who have served in the military, acknowledge their contributions and sacrifices. 
Memorial Day, of course, is is a really a day for sacrifices. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how America really, and then some of the bit of the, a bit on what the war was like in World War One and Two. It's just uh, it's just crazy when you look at the amount of casualties that America has suffered. And I went through all of them. In World War One, where we were only really at war for about a year, we lost 53,400 military personnel. This isn't casualties, which includes wounded and killed in action. This is just killed in action. In World War Two, we lost around 291,500. Look at that. Think of that. That was in four years, a little over four years. Korean War, we lost 33,700 or so. You know, that was uh, over two and a half, really three years. During the Vietnam period, we lost 47,434 military personnel. In the Gulf War, that was 90 to 91, we lost 147. In Afghanistan, and this is a little hard to put together, but approximately 2,300 right in there. And... In Iraq, we lost around 3,900. Now, that's killed in action, like I say. It doesn't include people who were killed while they were in the military for accidents or things like that, because that does happen a lot in wartime and in areas where soldiers are racing about and planes are flying and paratroopers are going out and so forth. So that doesn't include that. But I thought I would talk a little bit more about World War One, because we're so focused on World War Two. World War One was one of the bloodiest wars in, in history. And I looked at some of the casualties there in World War One. The British and, at this point, the people in the Empire would have been Australians, Canadians, uh, India, and so forth. In World War One, they from 1914 to 1918, they lost 886,000 people. That's not a really big country either. The French estimated that they lost over a million. The Germans, who ended up being on the losing side of it, the estimate is about 1.7 million. Think about those numbers during World War One, And think about why that took place. Not just because there was a lot of new equipment in vogue at that point. Squad-mounted machine guns. The tank was just beginning to be seen. Some more powerful and accurate rifles were introduced. But a lot of it took place because of the nature of the war. Remember, this this war was trench warfare. And that is a notoriously bloody way to fight, where you lose a lot of people. These guys ended up being dug in for long periods of time. With no man land, no man's land between them, as they would call it, trying to fight and lose dozens, hundreds of men, many times, some many times more than that, to gain just a few yards. Back and forth, back and forth. And the areas between the lines were decimated. Looked like something out of a, a bad science fiction movie. And don't forget that they also had some things going on that we didn't see in later wars. They had gas. Remember, they had mustard gas and some early nerve gas. We haven't used that, at least on a large scale, 
in war since then because it was so terrible, especially the mustard gas, which had a tendency to uh, boil up your skin. And if you breathed it, it essentially did that to your airways. And a lot of people who weren't killed had some very serious and lifelong injuries from just that. Also, there was the idea of some of the things you got from just the type of warfare that you were engaged in, not even from enemy fire. Some of us have heard the term trench foot. And, of course, that, that came out of World War One. And what trench foot was caused by, which is like a fungal infection of the feet, was because if you're in a trench all the time, through all kinds of weather, you can imagine what the bottom of that trench looks like. It's going to be filled with water a lot of the time, and who knows what else is in the water. Many of times they would try and put uh, lumber down to make a walkway to try and keep people's feet above the water and not slog through the mud, but it would still get wet all the time in many of these places. And so the shoes and socks of these men would become so saturated for so long that they would get this fungal infection. And it was very serious. And a lot of other things just from from the type of warfare it was. And then the sort of headlong charges that people would do to try and gain some ground, right? Jumping up, going over the over the top boys, as they would say, out of the trench and try and cross the no man's land and take that other trench from the opponents. And of course, you're running across open ground, trying to make that happen. And the other side is obviously dug in. They're in trenches. Their weapons are ready. There was uh, machine guns at the time. Some of them were liquid cooled and so forth. But it was uh, is terrible. And you can see how this happened. And it went on and on and on. Uh, casualties were really unbelievable when you look at them. As a matter of fact, if you take just killed, once again, not casualties, but people who were killed, when you throw in the civilians who were killed as part of this military effort in the First World War, about 20 million. 20 million, and that's everybody. Military deaths and civilian deaths. 20 million people. A little over four years. I don't think we can even imagine that now. We just have, like, no clue of that kind of grinding, dangerous, killing warfare. So that's where Veterans Day came from. Just so you know. That was who they were trying to honor, and our participation in it was just enough to put things over the edge for the Allies. And we sent people over there. Remember the Doughboys, as they were called? Uh, and it was uh, it was not great for them because our equipment wasn't particularly good. Uh, also, our uniforms weren't really made for some of the conditions on the battlefield, heavy wool and things like that. But they performed admirably. Uh, if you want to see an interesting movie about it, if you haven't already, you might see uh, Sergeant York, uh, which is based on a very, a very inspiring and true story. And I'm trying to remember. Uh, oh, I know who played Sergeant York. It's just right on the tip of my tongue. He was also in 
so many other things. It'll come to me. I wanted to say Randolph Scott, and that isn't true. That isn't even, that isn't close. But uh, it will it will come to me. Um, many of you are probably shouting at the radio because you know that. That's a that's a great movie about it. And of course, there's some other movies like Oh, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, stuff like that. But I I just think it's important to think about the kind of sacrifice people made and the just kind of frightening day-to-day life that a lot of these guys had to live um, and really not know, having any idea if tomorrow was going to bring their own death, uh, serious injury, and there are so many ways to get injured. So Veterans Day is a, a good day to think about that. There's a parade on Saturday here, uh, downtown Grand Junction where I'm at. Many of you have parades as well in your areas. And the weather's not bad, at least where I'm at. I never know where people are listening on the Internet or on the podcast. But uh, So you can get out, take a look, and let people know that you remember and that it's close to your heart because we have a real crisis in what's going on in the military in the United States now. We've talked about it before. They're having a very difficult time meeting their recruiting standards, or rather, allotted amounts. And they've been trying to lower standards and do all sorts of things to get people in, which is not the way you want to run your military. And they just, they're having trouble getting it. They're not, and some of them, they're not getting it. The Marines right now, who, by the way, I'd like to wish a happy birthday belatedly, the 248th birthday of the United States Marine Corps was on November 10th. So let's acknowledge that. But the Marines are the only ones right now that are getting close to their recruitment goals. And I think at some point those might fall out. One of the reasons, of course, is that parents are not as apt to want to send their kids into the military because they're not sure that they're being used properly. No one wants to think that you send your sons and daughters into a situation where they're being put in dangerous situations cavalierly. And when you look at our administration now, with President Biden, give me that, uh, Secretary Blinken, you know, Secretary Austin. I mean, are these people that you have any confidence in that they're going to utilize people in the armed forces in a measured and tactical way that is going to advance United States interests? I've not seen much in the way of that. So the military is, is in, it's in sad shape. We also are just suffering from the fact that we are low on materials. We've been shipping so much to Ukraine, and now we're also, you know, sending things to Israel. But we've drawn down a lot of our ammunition, tremendous amount of our, our military's artillery, uh, missiles, whoops, things like that. Uh, we're low on that. And of course, Joe Biden sunk down the, uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve during the last election, or just before, to try and get gas prices down. And as I recall right now, I don't believe he's refilled it. So we're in a pretty bad place. And we've been running all sorts of, what shall we say, social experiments in the military. And I've talked about this, too. It, it's great if you're in the uh, administration and it's Democrats and progressives, and you want to put across all of these ideas. And you don't have to get a vote from anybody. 
because, of course, the executive branch controls the military. So you can have all kinds of wild, weird stuff coming out in there, and it's not like Congress can necessarily do anything about it. It's not like you, you could pass any legislation to impose that kind of thing on the general population. Well, the military, you know, that's the commander-in-chief. And I think that a lot of people out there that are thinking about going in or sending their kids there see that, and it's not a very welcoming place. And it's not something that they necessarily are comfortable with. Now, at some point, people are saying, well, if it gets so alien feeling to people in the military, people going into the military, will they still want to fight for the country if they don't recognize the country? I don't know. I think that Americans generally have a much higher degree of patriotism, but it's really under attack. We call, they, they want to call it nationalism now. That's, that's very bad. National, oh, that's very bad, yes. Uh, they, they, what can I say? They denigrate people who say they love their country. It upsets them when people wave American flags. They're quite okay, apparently, with them waving so-called Palestinian flags or flags of several other places, usually waved by people who have fled those countries and refuse to go back to them but protest in ours. Those that uh, receive a lot and in many cases have not given back much. So when you see that, it, it's, well, what am I, what am I fighting for here? I mean, you still can go back to say, look, I'm, I'm fighting on behalf of a country that has allowed myself and my family to live in a way that's better than anybody else in the world. And really, even people that are very much on the lower end of the economic scale in the United States are living better than almost anybody in the world beyond that. Young people are living better than a, even a lower middle class economic family in the United States. In other countries, pretty darn small as a percentage. Now, we see that the left is trying to crush the middle class because the middle class is what keeps everything from leaning, collapsing, whatever you want to call it. The middle class is upwardly mobile, driven to make things better, for their children than they had them. They have not been reduced to living on the government side of everything, like some of the poor people are at the very edge of society, that are captives of the progressive welfare state. And they want to move upward. They want capitalism because they want to have businesses. They want to make money. They want to buy things. They want to enjoy themselves. But they're not billionaires. See, billionaires are okay in this, in this scenario. There are people who are needful of the government because progressives like to create as many of those as possible. And then there are people who it doesn't really matter what the government does. They can virtue signal and all sorts of things all they want. They have enough resources to where the consequences of those actions will not come home to them. They're not going to notice any difference. They just go back to their place in Maui or behind their walled uh, estate or on their yacht. And so what? They did something made them feel good. You know, well, we 
did this or that, or we stood up for this oppressed group that usually isn't even oppressed anymore, but uh, is loud. <laughs> and they feel good about themselves. So, And that, that continues to crush down the middle class, which is a stabilizing force in this society. And if you look at the way civilizations stay stable, it's because when they either have a middle class or some semblance of that, and it's kind of rare, but that's something that holds it together. It's it's the uh, torso <laughs> of the body politic for that. And when you don't have it, or when you're constantly attacking it, sooner or later, you're going to collapse into something else. Now, what that might be, we still don't know. I mean, people talk about this all the time, and I get asked about it, too, what I think. Uh, where are we headed? That's a good question. We used to have some ideas and I'm not sure we know exactly anymore. The future is as murky now as I've ever seen it. But what I can say is that what's happening is not going to necessarily lead to a society that's going to be a better environment for the vast majority of the people in it. It certainly is probably going to be a society that has a lot more control over it and a lot less liberty if we let that happen. Now, other things can happen, too. I mean, we can have a resurgence of patriotism and adherence to the Constitution, which is still probably the greatest document uh, forged by any political leaders in history. And we can try and get that back. Now, can we go backward? No, we can't go backward in time. We all know that. You know, time moves forward and you, you can't move it backward. You know, you can't uh, run the uh, the video backward and watch the teacup that was broken on the floor come flying up and go back together again. You have to find a new way. And sometimes that's not a bad idea. So during these times of pivotal moments like we're in now, something better can come out of it or something different and better can come out of it. So we have to we have to push towards that all the time, folks. The problem, of course, is that a clear roadmap is not really available to us right now. I think the closest we have is to look at our freedoms that our founders came up with, try and hold on to the base of those, and then resist those things' destruction. And out of that, I believe, we will come up with an, a new version of the system we have that isn't a progressive socialist, sort of Marxist, Engelist idea that uh, turns you into just an extremely large banana republic. Uh, and that has to come from you guys out there. But I have a lot of faith in all you folks. And I hope you have a great weekend and you've had a great Veterans Day and all you veterans out there. Thanks. Bye-bye.